Welcome to the Westside Gathering Podcast, and thanks for making the time to learn and grow with us. Here, you'll find teaching from our live Sunday gatherings. After the message, we'll say a little more about our church and how you can connect. But for now, let's jump right in. Uh, We're going to jump into this morning's talk and um, take some time to jump into the scriptures, to immerse ourselves in the scriptures together. And it's such a privilege that we get to do this uh, together. You know, we we started a a series on Revelation last week and, um, you know, John gets this vision on the Lord's Day, on Sunday. And that's really intentional. It shows us that the church already in early formation was meeting and gathering and being present and made Sunday special. And so that's what we do here. Let me start off with... um, with a thought, uh, you know, when I was growing up and I would uh, walk down the street or see a car or maybe meet a family or friends, I'd often look at their life and, you know, kind of appreciate or, uh, you know, get a sense of celebrating their life. I'd, maybe I'd see their house and I'd say, oh, that's a, that's a really nice house or that's a really cool home they've created or I, I used to love or still like landscaping. I'm like, oh, that's a really cool garden they've done. Or maybe I'd meet a person and, say, and just, you know, appreciate appreciate how productive they are or some of the cool things they do. And it's so easy to look from the outside to see kind of these outside things. And today you don't need to drive through a neighborhood for that because you can just scroll through Instagram and everybody's a model citizen, right? Everybody looks pretty cool on their social media feeds and on their TikTok videos. But here's, here's what I realized as I meet people personally, even the ones that I would look at and say, wow, that's really an amazing part of their life. I'd sometimes see often or too often see that the outside didn't always indicate what the inside was feeling. That the outside perception or the outside productivity or the outside achievement didn't always reflect on the inside. We're in this series that we started last week called Flickering Lights. And it's, we're, we're taking the next several weeks leading up to Easter, especially as Lent starts in a week or so, uh, to really lean into listening to the word of Jesus for seven local churches in Asia Minor, modern Turkey, that John, the apostle, uh, sends a letter to. And we're listening to this word from Jesus to the churches in the first century. They're called, we call them flickering lights. I call them that because they do have a light. They have a purpose. But sometimes they were struggling. Their lights weren't always as bright or as strong as they could have been. Now, this church we're going to look at today is awesome on the outside. But something is cracking on the inside. It's the church, an amazing church in the city of Ephesus. And if you were with us last week or you catch up on our podcast, you'll recognize that, you know, we said that the churches in that region felt maybe like a blip in a big ocean. They were on their own. Now, before we get to this church, I want to tell you about this city. I love cities and I love walking cities and, uh, and exploring cities. And here's the city of Ephesus. There's some pictures that will come up on the screen as we talk about it. Ephesus was a major, major urban city in the Roman Empire. In that time period, even though the population of the world was smaller, this city was over 200,000 people. It was a port town right near the water. That meant that it was a business center. It was a cultural center. It was, it was diverse. Uh, it was known as having a really significant and strong banking system. Their seaport business was strong. They even hosted what was known as the Pan-Ionian Games. Now, that was like second to the degree of popularity and size 
eyes to the Olympics. And you're like, the Olympics 2,000 years ago? Actually, the Olympics started 2,700 years ago in the year 776 BC. So 800 years later, the Olympics is still going, but there's this other set of athletic games, which we also have in the world today, and they were hosted in this town called Ephesus, or city. Uh, they had an amphitheater as big as the Bell Center. Yeah, it actually sat 24,000 people. That's how big this space was to host events. Ephesus was often honored. They kind of won prizes from the Roman Empire uh, as, a, as a really good city or a city that fit into the values of Rome. So the emperor would often build a temple uh, in their name in the cities that kind of won this or were, were given this honor. And Rome built a temple honoring different emperors four times over 160 years. So Ephesus was like a pretty important city in the Roman Empire. And they were a religious city, not the kind of religion that we understand today, where especially in the West, in North America, we talk about, you know, um, a Jewish faith or a Christian faith or even a Muslim faith. No, it was, it, was, it was different. It was much more plural and it was much more kind of a plurality of gods understood then. And there was this temple to one of the great gods or the goddess Artemis. And this temple was humongous, and it sat on like a, a land as big as three or four football fields. The temple was known as the seventh wonder of the world. And so this is a glimpse of this city. Now, why learn about the city before we even hear about the church? Because I want us to remember that these Christians lived in an urban center with all the bells and whistles, in an urban center with all the attractions and all the business, in an urban center with the pleasures and sports and politics that were on par with religion. It wasn't for, like it's not foreign to them what we even experience today. Like in Montreal, right? We talk about the Canadians or hockey being a religion. Well, sports and athletics for them was similar. It's not uncommon for us to talk about the culture and business and pleasures of our city. Well, that wasn't that was known to them in this city, and this is the kind of city that this church that we're going to read about actually lived in and followed Jesus in and was a small, small, small pocket in the middle of this big region. So if you got your Bibles, turn to Revelation chapter 2, verse 1 to 7. And just as a spiritual practice, um, we're going to just pause before we even read this and make space for the Holy Spirit to speak, to grab our attention, to prompt us, to help us to hear as every church gets this message, to listen to the Spirit among them. So we just want to do that right now as we read this text. Verse 1, to the angel of the church in Ephesus write, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in, the, in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Here's the message. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance. I know that you cannot tolerate evildoers. You have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them to be false. I also know that you are enduring patiently and bearing up for the sake of my name and that you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember then 
from what you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet do this, yet to this, to your credit, you hate the works of the, of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Let anyone who has an ear to listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. To everyone who conquers, I will give permission to eat from the tree of life that is in the paradise of God. That's the message to this small group of people in Ephesus in the first century. Ephesus, or the church of Ephesus, is a pretty interesting church. Its origins have a lot of roots within Christian history, even within the beginning of the church. Paul started this church. He writes a letter to them in the New Testament. Timothy later pastored this church. And um, I just died. My battery just died, so no problem. I'll just keep going. Um, Timothy pastored this church, and he ended up uh, pastoring this church for a while. And what happens... uh, as, as he's pastoring it, uh, Paul also writes him a letter to encourage him in his ministry. Tradition tells us that Timothy was, was murdered by Rome. That's very possible. And then later on, we, ha- we understand that John then becomes the pastor of this church. So John very likely wrote his first gospel or the gospel that we read in the New Testament from this church in Ephesus or from this place in Ephesus. It's likely that because John promised Jesus on the cross that he would take care of his mother, Mary now was someone who lived and, and, and was with John in his life. And so it's very possible that Mary was part of this church in Ephesus. So imagine Christmas Eve, Mary sitting in the first row. Kind of weird, but that could be the reality of this church. So Ephesus has rich, rich history. And Jesus has a word for this church. He has a word for this church. And we know it's Jesus because there's a reference to who Jesus is in chapter 1, that he's the one who holds the seven stars in his hands, and he's the one who walks or stands among the lampstands. And Jesus' word to the church is this, I know your works. That's how he starts off his message to this church. Jesus walks among them, not literally, But it's a metaphor helping us understand that he's present with the church, that he sees what the church is doing, that he understands what's going on in this church, that he's aware. And he commends them and he corrects them. And Jesus does this with every church that receives this letter in Revelation. And here's a really important thing to just keep in mind. What they do matters. Jesus says, I know your works. That's important for us because Jesus also walks among us. Jesus is also aware of our church. Jesus knows our works. What we do matters. What we teach, what we, how we disciple, how we encourage, how we equip, how we live out the gospel in our city, how we minister to one another, how we interact with each other, how we discern uh, the message of the gospel in our own city and time, that matters. Jesus knows their works. Jesus knows our works. Something about Ephesus can be easily said that Ephesus was like a model church. They worked. They were active. They were moving. They were serving. They were building. They were reaching. Jesus says, I know your toil. In other words, I I know the energy that you exert into being the church for your city and for that time. 
Jesus refers to their resilience, how patient and how patiently they endure. So they're enduring patience. He, he recognizes how discerning they are. He says, you know, you were, you're able to test what the apostles, uh, what people are teaching, and you compare it back to the apostles. They tested those who claimed to be apostles. So that would maybe mean someone who came into their town, someone who would share a message. Maybe there was a guest speaker. Uh, maybe someone said, hey, have you listened to that podcast or something? There was no iPods back then, but that was the idea, right? And so Jesus is saying, you guys are a discerning church. You're able to test if what you hear from others connects or affirms or is in line with the apostles' message, the message of Jesus. So they were able to affirm the message of Jesus that the apostles passed down. Paul, Timothy, John were good pastors, and they equipped this church. This church also rejected heresy or false promises. This group that... Jesus refers to, we'll talk about them later on as well. We don't know too much about them. The, 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 this group was interesting in a sense where likely they came in and were doing something or teaching something or promising something that really wasn't in line with the message of the church. Jesus says, you've rejected them. And that's a good thing. So they were a discerning church. They rejected this. But they were also an enduring church. They, they knew struggle. Two times, Jesus says, at least in the version we read, that they patiently endured twice, referring to patience and endurance. They lived in a culture that maybe overwhelmed them. They lived in, under the system and ideologies in their city that was contrasting the values of God's kingdom Rome was against them. Rome took their pastor and sent him to Patmos on an island, imprisoned. They endured that. They experienced that. They knew what it meant to be enduring, to struggle. And so they were actively on mission, and they were patiently waiting and I think that's so important because sometimes we can be so active doing things and we forget that there's a hope in new creation. Sometimes, though, the reverse happens where we're just like, hey, this is awesome. New creation is going to come. We're just going to kind of fold our arms and put our feet up. But this church was doing both. They were patiently waiting for new creation, but they were actively serving God. So this church was, was kind of the bomb in their, in their region. They were active and energetic and productive and resilient. They were highlighted at church conferences. People probably in our day would have written a book about Ephesus. Oh, you should be like this church, Ephesus. Look how they teach. Look how resilient they are. Look how they're serving. Look how active they are. Look at Ephesus. Be like them. And there's a lot of churches around these days that that tends to happen to. Oh, look what they're doing. Look how good they are. Look how great they're serving their neighborhood. Look at the teaching they have. Look at the worship they have. Look at the kind of ministries they've developed. But then Jesus has a word of correction for them. With all the great stuff we see on the outside, they seem to be cracking on the inside. With all the activity that's going on that's so commendable, it seems like something is lacking inside Something is happening inside them. 
that is starting to crack. And Jesus says, I have this against you. That's strong words. Like against you? Have you ever felt that Jesus was against you? We rarely use that language. But Jesus tells this to this church. He has something against them. That's strong. See, Jesus knows them. Jesus knows uh, who they are and what they're about. And they can't fake who they are on the inside. Man, when I read this, I, I'm, I, it's a sobering thought. I can't fake who I am with Jesus. If someone asks us what's going on at our church or how's Westside doing, we could list a bunch of things. Oh, we, you know, we hosted a, a blood drive last week. Oh, our kids' ministry is doing this. Oh, we're grateful for live stream and all this kind of stuff. We can't fake what's going on on the inside of us. I can preach, someone can sing, people can mentor, some can support through tech, others can uh, serve, lead, counsel, host. But Jesus knows what's going on on the inside of our church, the heart of our church, the heart of our people, the heart of our leadership. He can tell if the inside is getting ugly or not. And Jesus says, I have this against you. You've abandoned love. They were a model church. They were enduring church. But they had abandoned love. You've abandoned the love you had at first. I bet most of us know what this feels like, right? Maybe you're in a vocation like teaching or nursing or finance. And when you first started your career, you loved everything about what you were doing. And there was like just such a passion to be involved in the healthcare system or such a passion to teach high school students or, or such a passion around numbers and finances. It's like you would do it for free. You would, you would do it because you just loved doing it. And you loved the work. Many who are married today look back and say, oh man, when, we, when I first got married, every free moment I wanted to be with my spouse. Every free moment I'd love to sit and have a meal with my spouse. Every free moment, I'd, how can we make time to be together? As you look back in those early years, some who are creative, like with writing or art or music, you would do it just for the beauty of it, just for the process of it, just because you didn't care if there was a paycheck involved. You didn't care if there was recognition or affirmation or anybody ever heard about it. You would just paint because you love to paint. You just play because you love to play. You just learn that chord because you love to learn that chord. There was this love at the start. See, love is usually at the heart of all good things. And God's love... And the love we grow for God and for others is at the heart of our faith and at the heart of what it means to be the church. Paul once wrote to this very same church in its early stages, Ephesians chapter 3.18, you were rooted and established in love. We did a whole series on that in, in September. Rooted and established in the love of God, their father expressed through the son, Jesus Christ. Paul wrote to them, in chapter one of that letter, he says, I, I know your faith and I've heard of how you love one another. So love was at the start of this church. Love for God, love for one another, love for the world around them. Eugene Peterson writes something on this text and, and as he thinks about love, he says these words, read it off the screen. He says, humans do great things, but the best thing they do is love. 
Humans do great things, but the best thing they do is love. He also said this. He said, when we are living at our best, doing what we're created for, we love. And I think we know that innately. We know that to be true. When we look around the world even, we could say that, you know, the best expression, the best form of of humanity, the best form in any society, the best part of any neighborhood is when we see love at the heart of who we are and what we're doing. And even though Peterson uses the word human for this, I think it's appropriate because Jesus transforms every person who follows him into the best version of humanity that he longs to see in us. See, the scriptures tell us that we were created in God's image to be a reflection to the world around us of who God is. That's what it means to be human. That's God's vision of humanity. And if love is at the core of our faith, then love must be one of the best reflections of what it means to be created in God's image. We are at our best as humans. We are at our best as Christ followers when we love. But man, this word from Jesus is tough. I have this against you. I have this against you that you've abandoned the love you had at first. You've abandoned the love you experienced from me at first. You've abandoned the love that grew in you to love others because I first loved you. You've abandoned that. You've abandoned that. And it's so serious to Jesus that he lists all these amazing things. He commends them for it. And remember, the other churches are likely going to end up reading this circular letter too. So they're like seeing this awesome expression of who Ephesus is too. But they're also going to hear the words of Jesus for Ephesus that they've abandoned their love. And Jesus says, remember, repent, and redo. Remember, he starts off by saying that. Remember where you came from. Remember the love you had at the beginning. Remember how you started. Remember the source of your faith. Remember the source of your relationship with with Christ. Remember the source of how this church started. Remember that initial response you had to following Jesus. Remember that moment you decided to be baptized in water, immersing yourself, saying, I'm aligned with Christ. My allegiance is with him. I've experienced his love and his grace. I've heard his call and I'm following him and his love has filled me up and I want that to overflow flow to the people around me. Remember that the source of Christ's initiative for your salvation was God love the world so you could know him. It was love. And when we remember, when we remember that, we recognize the gap between where we started to where we are at the moment and we realize what's missing. To remember means looking beyond our activity and going underneath the surface and saying, what about our attitude? To remember is looking at the surface and saying, I'm doing all these things. But what's underneath? Is there like, what about my being? Yeah, here's my doing, but what about my being? To remember is is letting the Holy Spirit reveal. And that's the title of this whole book, Revelation, Apocalypso. To, be, to unveil something, to let the Holy Spirit reveal what's under the surface, what's below our activity, what's below our doing, to become aware. And, and this is one of the reasons I love <clears throat> Revelation is because Revelation, like we said last week, is an apocalypso. It's an unveiling. John gets to see the curtain unveiled with what's happening behind the scenes. 
And it's also an unveiling of our own hearts as Jesus unveils what's beneath our doing, what's beneath our activity, what's beneath our words, what's beneath our energy, what's beneath our endurance, what's beneath our discernment, what's beneath our love to teach, what's beneath our pursuit of doctrine. And the question I I, I keep hearing as I read this, and I keep hearing this question, Dave, are you empty of love? Are you empty of love? It's great to organize ministry. It's great to counsel people. It's great to serve. Are you empty of love? And as we see the things going on, even in our church community and the things we want to see, and next week we get to gather again in person and we start to see that. But, but this question is so vital. Are we empty of love? Jesus says, remember how this all started. He says, repent. Because you can't just stay at remembering. you got to do something about it. If you've remembered, if you've become aware, what happens next? And so Jesus calls us to repentance, that word that means turn around. If you're walking in the wrong direction, if you know you're in the wrong place, then turn around, go back, reorient yourself in that posture, position, direction. And confession and correction is important. This is why we embrace both Jesus commending the church and correcting the church. Because there's often room for confession and correction, which leads to repentance, so we can turn. It's one thing to confess. It's one thing to hear correction. Repentance is our response to that, where we turn back. And when Jesus says repent, then he says redo. This is like uh, Daryl Johnson in, in an awesome book on Revelation I recommend to everybody called Discipleship on the Edge. He, instead of, he just loves to use the word redo, probably because he likes three hours in a row. But Jesus says, do what you did at at first. Redo. Remember, repent, and redo. Go back. How are you nurturing your faith back then? How are you growing in your relationship with Jesus? What prompted you to serve that first time you served? What prompted you to give generously that first time you gave generously? What led you to start tithing your income to God's local mission? What, What was the spark underneath all that? And Jesus is saying, if you recognize the gap, go back, redo those things, maybe in fresh ways, maybe with fresh eyes, but redo them, nurture them, cultivate them, deepen them, depend on them. Because over time, if we don't, we can, the insides of us will crack. here's, Here's a word I felt this week, and I've been feeling for us and for the church as a whole in this season, in our culture, in our world, in this time in history, we need deep people and deep churches more than ever today. We don't just need superficial stuff. We don't just need great activity. We don't just need good music. We don't just need polished sermons. We need deep people and deep churches You know, when I think about some of the the most effective and influential activists in our world that were followers of Christ, they were deep people. They had lives and practices of prayer and immersion into the message of the scriptures. They practiced contemplative prayer and and silence and solitude and and community uh, development among uh, other Christ followers. We need deep people and deep churches in our society today. We need it as the church. That includes depth of scripture. But Jesus 
pushes us here because the Ephesian church, they had discernment. They had some good doctrinal purity. They were able to reject heresy. So for them, depth meant coming back to resting and being rooted in God's love. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about contemplation. And one author describes it as basically vulnerability, becoming vulnerable to God's love in your life. We need deep people in deep churches more than ever before. We will not be able to withstand the kind of requests and false promises and invitations and temptations and narratives and, 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 and this kind of like uh, impulse to react in our culture unless we become deep people. We desperately need it to redo those practices, postures that, only, that not only help us grow in knowledge, but deep love. See, like, I, I mean, I've been reading tons of books on Revelation. That's knowledge. But when I read this text, I realize I must go deeper than that. The, the, the knowledge, the context, it's not all that it's meant to be. It's about abiding in the love of Jesus daily. And I'm so concerned today when I see reactionary Christians. Like, the church and Christians are becoming more known for their reaction than their action. For their reaction rather than their active presence with people. On one side, we have Christians who are just so fueled by political anger. On the other side, we have Christians that are so fueled by some moralistic pride. And they're so reactionary. And you see it online, and you see it in their words, and you see it in their posture, and you see it in their conversations. And this is what the church, what Christians are becoming known for. And I think this word to Ephesus is so important for us in this time. Jesus was concerned with the basis of their love. And he was so concerned with this that he says, and we're going to slowly wrap up here. He says, if you don't do this, I'll remove your lampstand. In other words, I'll remove the, the basic existence that you, why you exist as a church. In other words, they can remain a shell, but they won't be God's living and local presence for that city. Jesus says, if you don't do this, if you don't remember, repent, and redo, redo, I will remove your lampstand. I'll remove your light. I'll remove your witness. Man, that's a strong word. See, the church universal will go on. The church always go on, goes on. But this one church might not. And that's what Jesus is telling them. He's not saying the whole church is going to stop. But he's saying you as a church might not exist forever. The church's light wasn't out. It was flickering. The church's witness wasn't gone. It was flickering. Jesus has not shut them down yet, but they're starting to implode from the inside because they lack the depth and love. And here's why. Because without love, we'll have nothing to offer the world around us. Without a depth of relationship with Jesus, a depth of relationship as a church, as individuals, we will have nothing to offer the world around us. No light, no witness. See, these Christians lived in the shadow of the temple of Artemis the great goddess of Artemis, the goddess of fertility and the goddess of lust. 
So for that city, for this, the people that were following this love was everything you can get from something, everything you can get, everything you can receive, everything that, that can be pleasurable, getting something out of it. The temple had this, this false advertisement for true love and true life. And that little church in Ephesus could not compete with three or four size football fields of length of this property and this beautiful temple and the gardens and the statues. The church could not compete with that temple in terms of what they had on the outside. And Jesus says, if you lack love, you'll never be a witness there. We can only give to the world what we have. We must live out of it. And so he says, listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. We can't compete with the world. We're not meant to. Remember once I went to this conference in Ontario. Great conference, saw really cool things that this church was doing. And I hopped on this train and came back to Montreal. And my wife and kids picked me up at Via Rail. And we went that night. It was the mural festival was downtown. So we went downtown. We walked the streets on St. Laurent. We saw like far away there was a party going on. And people on a balcony and lights and music. There was food. There was, there was all kinds of really cool you know, spots all over this. And the diversity of our city. And, and it was so good for me to leave that conference, to get on a train to, and go to St. Laurent Street because I realized in that moment that we as a church cannot, comp- cannot compete with our culture. That we can try and do amazing music but we'll never be as good as some of the music acts in our city. We can do amazing things but we'll never be as creative as the incredible things that have been happening in our city. Cirque du Soleil and other things like that. But that's not our call. But if we, if we lack love, we will lose our witness and our light. That is what the Spirit wants to do in us. That is what the Spirit wants to do in us. And Jesus says, do this and you will conquer. He doesn't mean you're going to win like a fight. People often wrongly take this language in Revelation like we're fighting our culture. To conquer is mean to be faithful till the end, to be victorious until new creation, to, 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 to endure through the ups and downs of, the, of, of our culture, through the ups and downs of history, to follow the path of remembering and repentance and redoing and to get back to love. To conquer is to be faithful till the end. And Jesus says, if you conquer, you will eat of the tree of life that is for you. Do you know that on the grounds of the temple in Artemis, there was a garden that featured a tree? And this tree was like a beautiful tree. It was a tree that was revered. And it's amazing that Jesus refers to the tree of life here when the people in Ephesus can likely connect their minds and their eyes to this tree in the gardens of Artemis. See, that tree is, is, is promising something, is promising a satisfaction and a pleasure and a life, and a love of only getting, getting, getting. But it's a false promise that's shallow. Jesus says, you conquer to the end. You be faithful to the end. You will eat of the tree of life. The tree of life that was representative in the Garden of Eden, in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, and the multiple trees of life in new creation that will bring healing to the nations. That is our satisfaction. That is our hope. So my last question as we pray. Like what tree have you bet your satisfaction on? What tree have you been leaning towards, been looking towards for your own life and purpose and energy and strength? 
Is it the featured tree in our culture or is it the tree of life that God promises us? And then ask the question, are we, are we empty of love inside? I, I, I love great, so many things about who we are as a church and the people we are becoming. But I want to hear the words of Jesus today to hear if there's any correction for us in our own hearts, in our own minds, in our own ministries. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we want to take these words seriously. We want to, we just listen to this where Jesus literally tells the church of Ephesus to listen, to listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. God, I don't pretend to know exactly what is in each of our hearts. But I know that you're looking deeply in my heart. And I know you're de- looking deeply in our church's heart. And we thank you for moments of affirmation and commendation and honoring and moments of recognition. We need that encouragement to move forward. But we also pause. We want to listen to what your spirit is saying to the churches, what your spirit is saying to Westside, what your spirit is saying to us. May we hear openly, honestly, receiving that. Oh God, and help us, empower us to be faithful, to conquer, to be faithful to the end. And thank you for the amazing promise. You give us life. You give us life. You are offering us life. The source of the tree of life is offered to us. That is our true source, our true hope, our true joy. And Lord, may we see that invitation so much brighter than the invitations in our world. Help us to recognize that. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope this message helps guide you on your spiritual journey of discovering the life and message of Jesus. We update this podcast weekly, so why not hit subscribe and journey with us? Who are we? Westside Gathering is a local church in the West Island of Montreal. We're a simple community of faith where we want you to feel welcome, even if you're not into church or religion. We meet every Sunday, but you can also find smaller groups, environments, and resources for all ages between Sundays. Find out more at westsidegathering.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Vimeo. We'd love to hear from you. Ask a question, ask for help, or let us know how we can pray for you. If you'd like to contribute financially, just go to westsidegathering.com forward slash giving. Until next time, peace.